the second Sunday of Easter, the unfolding season of Easter, which gives us the opportunity to meditate upon and fall more deeply into the mystery of God's resurrection love. The resurrection changes reality, by which I mean it changes our frame of reference on reality. As I perceive the world and as you perceive the world, as any of us perceive the world and think of something as being real, there are, of course, objective scientific standards by which we can establish that reality and certain facts which are irrefutable historically. But otherwise, the way we see the world, how we think about the world, the way we see ourselves in the world, how we see the presence of God unfolding in our lives, that's a interpersonal, it's rather intrapersonal, that's a, a subjective view. That's the frame of reference by which we see the world. And that's, I think, what happens in the resurrection. It's different than uh, the raising of Jairus' daughter that Jesus did, a little girl who was dead and had been raised to life, or the raising of Lazarus. Those are resuscitations. The little girl died again. Lazarus died again. As I've said to you before, when you come to the story of the raising of Lazarus, part of me says, leave the poor fellow alone. He's already dead. He's just going to have to die again. That's a resuscitation. What happens in Jesus, uh, in God's action with Jesus, is a resurrection. It changes how we understand life and death. It changes life and death, I think, itself. It opens us up to the reality that it is only in dying that we live. In a very real sense, of course, there is no death. There's transformation. As Jesus said, if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it becomes a bountiful harvest, tenfold, a hundredfold. But if it just remains a seed sitting on a shelf, it's nothing. So the seed, when it falls into the ground and dies, is not really dead. It is transformed into a new harvest. In the same way, when we die, our heart stops beating, that doesn't mean reality stops. It doesn't mean our identity ceases. Our person, the you that is you, is not dependent upon your beating heart. The you that is you is a gift that you have received from God. It's the essential you-ness. Is that a word, you <laughs> Well, it's a person's name, right? No, but I mean the, the, the you that is really you. And so on this uh, second Sunday of Easter, um, very often in the cycle of readings, the lectionary, we find this story from the Gospel of John in the 20th chapter. Other years we find the story from Luke uh, that we preached on uh, last week, the Cyper at Emmaus. But here we find the experience, again, that takes place on the evening of the resurrection at a, at a room where the disciples are hiding, and then um, a week following in the same room, a second encounter. 
You may not think you know this story, but you do. If you've ever heard the term Doubting Thomas, which I think you probably have, then you know this story, because this is whence it came. When it was evening on that uh, day of the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples were meeting was locked for fear of the Jewish authorities. Yet Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So they've locked themselves in the house. And suddenly, this person appears, somehow present despite the doors that are locked, and speaks to them in words that they can understand. Peace be with you. Which is, of course, one of the great uh, invocations that Jesus uttered innumerable times um, in his ministry. Peace uh, be with you. Irene in the Greek, or shalom in Hebrew, neither of which uh, refers to peace, which is the, the absence of conflict. That's the way we think of peace in our own day and age, which is really defined by an almost unremitting cycle of violence that has beset the world uh, for several hundred years. Peace, in this biblical concept, is the presence of a positive reality. Not the absence of conflict, but the presence of love and the way love is known in public justice. Peace be with you. And after he said this, <clears throat> Jesus showed them his hands and his side, where he had been nailed and where they had thrust a spear to make sure that he was dead. And after he showed them his hands and his side, the disciples rejoiced because they have seen the Lord. Now, early in the day, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb and had come back to them and pronounced her experience, and the beloved disciple and Peter had run to the tomb, and they had seen it empty and came back and had told the other disciples. But here they are, locked in the room, and this figure appears, but it's not until they see the wounds in his hands and the spear scar in his side that they see him. As we talked about last week, it's when Jesus breaks the bread that their eyes are opened and they recognized him. In the same way, the growing understanding, the, the, the deepening or the raising of the consciousness of these early disciples uh, is developed slowly. It's not in the blink of an eye, but it's the accumulated experiences which for them now, perceiving the actual wounds, that they see him to be alive. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I will send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What will you do with them? He breathes onto them. Reminds you of the book of Genesis, where in the second story of the creation of humanity, God fashions a figure out of clay and breathes into it. It becomes animated, both male and female. Or at the beginning, the very beginning of the beginning, In the beginning, the spirit of God, ruach, the breath, the wind of God. In the beginning, the wind, the spirit, moved over the face of the deep. This animating presence. It's a recreation, as it were. In this moment, just as God breathed into Adam, this first human, so Jesus breathes into the disciples a new reality of their lives, and says, peace be with you. Now, if you forgive the sins of any, he says, they are forgiven, and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He said something like this in the Gospel of Matthew to Peter, who's the person, he says, will be the rock upon which he will build the church. Now, why does Jesus say this? If you forgive the sins of others, they'll be forgiven, and if you retain the sins, well, they'll be retained. Why does he say that? Does he mean... Yeah, you should forgive some people, but other people, no, you shouldn't forgive them. Hold on to them. Really? I don't think that's what he means. It's a rhetorical statement. He's saying forgive people their sins. If you hold on to them, if you don't forgive them, what are you going to do with them? You're going to breed a hateful heart and a bitter spirit in a miserable human existence. If you want to free one another, if you want to free yourselves, the only way to do so is with forgiveness, which in a very real sense is the final form of love. We don't forgive each other because we have earned forgiveness. I'll forgive you if you do thus and so. That's not forgiveness. That's some kind of transaction. Jesus doesn't say be stupid, become a doormat, let other people hurt you repeatedly without stop. No, but he says if you want to ultimately, as a person, be freed, then forgive people. So when he says if you, if you retain them, they're retained, what he's saying is if you don't let it go, baby, it's still yours. He never actually said baby, by the way. <laughs> You could look it up. It's not in there. Now, Thomas, who's called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him what had happened. We have seen the Lord, they said. But he said, well, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, put my finger in the marks of the nails, my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later... The disciples were again in the house. This time, Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, locked, as before. Now bear this in mind. It's a week after the resurrection, and they're still locking the doors. You know, you can build the tallest wall. You can create the strongest lock. You can establish razor wire. 
you can put in the greatest security system in the world, God will not be retained or restrained, rather. You cannot build a wall that's high enough. But they're still building the wall. They're still locking the doors. So the doors were shut, and Jesus came and he stood among them, and again he said to them, Peace be with you, this positive presence of the Spirit of God. And then he said to Thomas, seems to know that Thomas wants to know, he said to Thomas, well, put your finger here in my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Yet this is the fellow they called Doubting Thomas. He doesn't want to see anything but the other, what the other disciples have already seen. They don't un- see and understand who he is until they see the marks in his hands and the wound in his side. He's just asked for the same evidence. But notice what Thomas says. They, the other disciples are rejoicing. But Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now make note that this is the first time in the Gospels, this is the first affirmation, the first equation, the first identification of Jesus and God is by Thomas, who it seemed to me is really not the one who doubts, but the one who sees and believes, who trusts. Poor Thomas, he gets a bad rap. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet will have come to believe. He's talking about us. He's talking about all the people who will come after his earthly appearances of the resurrection. When he comes back and we perceive him, not with our eyes, as it says in our prelude, we live by faith and not by sight. Thank you, Frank. We live by faith and not by sight. So he shows them the marks of the nails in his hands and the wound of the spear in his side. It's curious. Shouldn't the resurrected Christ be perfected? Shouldn't the one who's raised from the dead have all of his ailments healed, all of his wounds be ended, gone to a plastic surgeon and had all the scars removed? Maybe he had liposuction, I don't know. No, he comes back. You only know him because of the wounds and the scars. It's how you know that it's him. There's genius in this because it's only in our wounds and our scars, our suffering, our experiences of pain, that we know who we are. And it's only to the extent that we're willing to share with one another the wounds and the difficulties, the pain, the hurt, the suffering of our days. It's only the degree to which we are open and honest, vulnerable about those things that people will ever know who I am or who you are. What's that great thing that uh, Brene Brown says? We want everybody else to be vulnerable, but we don't want to be vulnerable ourselves. No, it has to be a reciprocal sharing. This, it's, it's, the, it's a friend of mine who had a really horrible 
childhood has come to the point in her life after lots of work with therapists and healing to say, I'm actually glad for my childhood. What? It made me who I am. And I like who I am. And so it was the pain of that childhood experience that helped shape my character, my personality, who, who I am. Many years ago when we were in Biloxi, Mississippi on a senior high youth group work camp, uh, we were painting houses. And the houses uh, that we were painting were owned by um, almost always elderly, elderly women um, who had spent their whole lives uh, working as domestics in the homes of people who lived in the big mansions down by the water. They were on the back bay or on the other side of the tracks. It's interesting, you go to Biloxi and there is one side of the tracks and the other. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And so they were always paid under the table, of course, cash. So that meant virtually nothing in Social Security, no pension, of course. And many of them continued to work on a very part-time basis just to hold things together. So in any event, we're working with them painting their houses, which is the most, in many cases, the only real investment wealth that they had. And these uh, women were always incredibly gracious to these young people and to the adults. And one day, um, Mrs. Johnson came out. It was hot. We were in Biloxi in April. And I tell you, you go to, I, can't, I couldn't live in Biloxi in July. I almost died in April. It was so hot. But anyway, Mrs. Johnson came out with iced tea, and we were sitting at a picnic table in her yard beneath this uh, beautiful old oak tree. And uh, I asked her about her life, and she said, oh, I've been blessed in so many ways. I have three children. So I asked her about the children. The first son uh, was killed in Vietnam. Uh, the second son was uh, doing time in prison. And the third child, the daughter, uh, struggled mightily with addiction. She had children, she worked, but she really struggled with addiction. And I'm sitting there feeling gutted by her narrative, her life narrative. It's almost as though she perceived my thoughts. She leaned across the table and she patted me on the arm and she said, you know, Reverend, the Lord has really blessed me. You have these moments, right, where it'll be see it in your memory until they put you in a box and put you in the ground. Right. The Lord has really blessed me. Because it was God who had sustained her. It was the love of Jesus that had helped her keep her sanity. It was the presence of a loving church community that had surrounded her and 
comforted her in her deepest need and such grief that she had experienced in life. In the midst of all of the external circumstances that would seem to have tested anybody like myself beyond the point of breaking, she said, the Lord has really blessed me. The book of the uh, prophet Isaiah uh, contains the prophecy uh, interpreted by the early church in understanding the meaning of the crucifixion in saying the, the suffering servant, this one by whose stripes we will be healed, by whose wounds we will be made whole. So when Christ is resurrected, he comes back wounded because that's what made him who he is in a very real way, entering into the fullness of everything that human mendacity could visit upon him, not shrinking or stepping back, but experiencing fully the, the depths of suffering and hurt, despair and loneliness that we might feel, by which we can know and trust him to be an authentic friend. This is what Jesus called his disciples, of course, in the Gospel of John on the last night of his life. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. A friend is uh, someone who experiences the fullness of life, not just the good times, but disappears when the trouble begins. A friend is someone who, when the trouble begins, comes closer and stays. By his wounds, we are made whole. By our wounds, the reality of our living. In a very real way, we are made into who we are, holy. H-O-L-E-Y, holy, and W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely. To embrace the reality of the fullness of our experience, to be open with each other. We spend a lot of our time putting a good face on things. I'm fine. I'm good. Boy, oh boy, I'm blessed. When in fact, inside we're aching and hurting and crying. What a shame. Because if you tell everybody you're fine, nothing could be better, everything is going along swimmingly, no one will ever help you. But when you're honest, you will receive that help and you will invite others to be honest with you. It seems to me that Jesus was willing to come back and let us see who he really was. He didn't wear gloves, so he couldn't see the marks of the nails in his hands. He didn't wear an extra layer, a vest, so that we couldn't see the wound in his side. He lets us see 
and in seeing, really know him. We ought to do that, I think, as well, with God and with each other. Seems to me that that would be the least we could do for the resurrected Christ. Amen.